You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to Acts 25, beginning at verse 23, to Acts 26, verse 29. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, Peter, and also Stephen relate their experiences with Jesus Christ. And here, in toward the end of the book of Acts, we once again have Paul speaking about his past and how he came to know and serve and honor the Lord. We read then, beginning at verse 23 of Acts 25, where the word of God says as follows, The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him, therefore I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you 
are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long. I pray that, pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses it in Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? To faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it's a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are these articles? And then follows the Apostles' Creed, which we have sung together. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, a while ago, I was visiting a building site. Now, of course, you may wonder what in the world is a minister doing on a building site. But leave that question aside for a moment and just accept the fact that sometimes I venture out of my study 
and go to strange places. And now as I was walking around this building site, I noticed a lot of empty white round cylinders or tubes. I picked one up and examined it, and I asked the builder, what was it? Well, he informed me that in that glue there used, or in that tube, there used to be a lot of glue that was used for floor joists. He explained there was a time when we would nail the plywood to the floor, or otherwise, he said, we would screw the plywood to the floor, but after some time, it would let go and it would start to creak and make all kinds of noises, which the customers were not too happy about. So it was decided that in addition to screws and nails, they would also use glue. Hopefully that would make the floor good and permanent and creak-free. Well now, as I was preparing my sermon on Lord's Day 7, I had to, and I don't know why, but I had to think back to all of those discarded glue cylinders at the building site and their function. And what I concluded is that in one way or another, the contents of Lord's Day 7 has everything to do with glue. Or think about it for a moment. You know, back in Lord's Day 6, question and answer 18, we were introduced at last to our mediator and deliverer in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We were told that he is it, that he is the only one, because he alone is a true and righteous man and true God, all in one person. But then how could we be sure of this? And the catechism next pointed us last time to the Holy Gospel. The Gospel proves, it says, that he is the only one. From beginning to end, the Gospel points us to Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. So what do we have? At last we have a solution for our sins and misery. Finally we have a way out of the darkness. We have a light at the end of the tunnel. Only someone might be prone to remark, not so quick. For something more is needed. For on the one side, we have Jesus Christ as mediator and deliverer. We have the gospel-designated Savior. But on the other side, what we have are a whole bunch of sinners and wayward children. We have two very different parties. And between those two parties, there's this huge gap or chasm On the one side, the perfect deliverer, and on the other side, an imperfect people. You can't find more of a contrast in the entire world. What a divide. And then the question arises, how do you bridge this divide? How do you breach it? How do you get these two very different parties together? What can unite them? How can all the sinners on the one side get to benefit from the Savior on the other side? Well, now, beloved, Lord's Day 7 gives us the answer to that perplexing and profound question. And the answer, it is the marvel and the mystery of faith. 
and faith alone that brings these two very different parties together. Faith is the glue. Faith unites, binds, holds together. Lord's Day 7 is all about glue. That special glue called true faith. Well, let's take a closer look at that together this afternoon. I preached to you on the theme, true faith, real glue. We're going to look at the nature, the need, and the nurture. Well, first, let's take a close look at this special glue. What is true faith? What kind of ingredients can you find in it? Well, for an answer, we do well to turn, for starters, to question and answer 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And once again, it has to be said, the Catechism has done us a a huge favor. It saved us all kinds of time and effort. It's turned to the Bible for us. It's ranged far and wide from Genesis to Revelation. It's identified all the key passages. It's compiled all of those who, in one way or another, have something to say about faith. And then it has reflected upon them and done its best to bring it all together in one answer, or if you will, one sentence, one particular definition. So what's the definition? Well, look again. Answer 21. What is true faith? It's a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us or to me in his word. As well, it's a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. And this faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. In our translations, it's in a number of sentences, but you can also find it all captured in one sentence. So what is true faith? Well, the bare-bones answer is true faith is knowledge and confidence. A slightly fuller answer is true faith is a sure knowledge and a firm confidence. An even larger answer is that true faith is a sure knowledge connected to the Word of God and a firm confidence when it comes to forgiveness, righteousness, and salvation. Essentially, then, you can say true faith, and we can argue that point, but essentially the catechism says true faith has two elements to it. The one has everything to do with knowledge. The other has everything to do with confidence. And so you see this this special glue that we're dealing with this afternoon is a unique mixture of knowing and confiding. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us, first of all, of course, that faith has content. Faith has substance. Faith has to do with knowledge for openers. Some people, I admit, don't like to hear that. For them, faith is all about feeling, experience, spontaneity, emotion, and so forth. But yet, I would say to you this afternoon, that's not quite what Scripture teaches. 
Consider only what you find, for example, in Hebrews 11, that chapter about the so-called heroes of faith. And how does that chapter begin? By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life. By faith, Noah built an ark. You know, if you take each of these four by faith expressions, and you can add all the rest in that chapter as well, you'll see that they all rest on a certain knowledge or understanding. The ancients knew that it was God's command that called the universe into being. Abel knew the difference, obviously, between good and bad sacrifice. Enoch knew his God and how to please him. And Noah knew something about God's holy character and about the depraved world in which he was living. You see, all of these saints of old possess not just a feeling or an emotion, but also a certain knowledge. God had revealed to them these things, and they believed them and worked with them. So where does true faith begin? It begins with knowledge, this God-given knowledge, you can say. It begins with acknowledging that our God is not a silent God. He's a speaking, communicating God. And it begins by acknowledging that what God has said is especially captured in his holy word. In his word, we have the revelation of his will. True faith recognizes the word. But then at the same time, and that's important, true faith doesn't stop there. Because true faith not only recognizes the word, it goes on to embrace this word of God and to confess that it's true, it's reliable, it's accurate, it's steadfast, it's sound. Our Savior himself said the same thing when In the Gospel of John, you hear him say to the Father, Your word is truth. In other words, on this word I am building my life and my ministry and my sacrifice. But God gives us in his word is a sure knowledge. So, beloved, what about us? What about our, our faith? Where is it anchored? I hope it's anchored. I hope it's not just anchored in the ups and downs of your emotions, because that's trouble. But I hope it's anchored in the conviction that That the word of God, which we still have today, is true, stable, and steadfast. That's the kind of conviction that should guide us, direct us, and shape us and our outlook. But then, beloved, as faith is all about knowledge, it's also all about confidence you could say a special kind of confidence, just as the knowledge is special, so the confidence is special. And if you ask in what way, well, notice first of all, 
It's a firm confidence. A lot of us have faith that goes up and down like a thermometer. Sometimes we also have confidence that goes up and down like a thermometer. Strong one day, weak the next. Helps us to cope in some situations, but not in others. Well, faith's confidence is not like that. It's not wishy-washy. It's not unstable. It's firm. And indeed, I would say to you that the remarkable thing about this biblical faith is that the tougher the times and the situation, the firmer the confidence and the conviction. You know, this kind of confidence shows itself, especially when entering a lion's den or when being tied to a stake or when placing one's neck on an executioner's block. It's firm and rooted. Secondly, notice the catechism, again echoing the scripture, says this confidence is also very personal. The catechism inserts a special line to the effect that not only to others, but to me also, or also to me. So true faith is not in the first place what your parents believe, what your friends believe, what your relatives believe. It's all about what, what do I believe? What's my credo? Where do I stand? Some people have a big problem thinking for themselves. They let others do the thinking for them. It's as if they have no mind, no opinions, no values that they hold dear and close to their heart. Well, if you're like that, if that's your attitude, then I dare say true faith will always elude you. For true believers exercise their minds. They, they hold certain opinions passionately. They treasure certain values deeply. Their lives are not on automatic pilot. They possess this personal confidence. Well, in addition and thirdly, they also possess a lot of it. For this confidence that we're speaking about together this afternoon is not only firm and and personal, it's also rich and full and brimming over. Well, look, what does it consist of? The Catechism says it consists of the fact that God has granted me forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and salvation. What gifts... These are forgiveness, righteousness, and salvation are perhaps not the most popular words in our vocabulary, but I would dare state this afternoon that they are among the finest sounding words in all the world. Forgiveness, that's that unexpected word which reminds us that our slates are wiped clean. Whereas once our lives were full of pollution and guilt, God has wiped it all away. He scrubbed me clean. He's polished me up. 
And righteousness is that undeserved word which insists that, that now I also have a new status. I used to belong to the party of the unrighteous, the unclean, the defiled. But now God has set me and numbered me among the righteous. And salvation is that wide word that reminds me that I have an entirely new future now. I used to be among the condemned and the unsaved and the going nowhere crowd. But now I am eternally alive and walking on the highway to Zion. Rich confidence, beloved, indeed. But then fourthly, it needs to be said that this confidence is humble confidence as well. The Catechism says that all of this is out of mere grace. There's no way that you or I deserve any of this. Paul is right when he says in Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So if you think that forgiveness, righteousness, and salvation are yours by rights or deserts, you need to think again. They're all gifts of grace. They're ours unearned, unmerited, undeserved. They're ours to make us humble and to keep us thankful. And the next is also important for you and I to realize that this confidence along with this knowledge is, is spirit-endowed. This faith, this glue that we are speaking about this afternoon is not a homegrown product. We did not devise it or invent it or cook it up. No, it comes from God. And then especially from God, the Holy Spirit. And in that connection, the words of Acts 16, 14 come to mind. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The language is reminiscent of a can opener. God opened her heart. The reference is to Lydia. You remember that, that seller of purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. And notice there's quite a bit going on here. Lydia doesn't just stand up one day and say, I, I, I get it, I believe it, maybe she did. But, you know, behind her believing confession, Paul says there, there was God. There was God first and foremost. There, were, there was God working on her heart, opening it up. And indeed, upon further reflection, there is especially God, the Holy Spirit, I have to say in that connection that the proof texts mentioned by the catechism here are kind of incomplete. And personally, I would have added a reference to Romans chapter 8. For there we're being told and taught everywhere that it is ultimately the Spirit who opens hearts and changes lives. In short, we have every reason to praise, as we so often do in our hymns, praise the Holy 
spirit. And finally, beloved, this confidence we've been speaking about is not just firm, personal, rich, humble, spirit-endowed. It's also very much Christ-centered. If you read Ephesians 2 again, you will be reminded that this work rests entirely on the redeeming deeds of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For there Paul tells us that we've been made alive with Christ. We are raised with Christ, seated with Christ, are recipients of his kindness in Christ Jesus, are created in Christ. You see, our confidence is based not on us and on what we do. It's completely based on Jesus Christ and everything that he has done and is still going to do. So, beloved, take note. Take note of this special glue called true faith. Its nature is wonderful. And may you all possess it. May you all possess it in ever-growing abundance. Yes, and I say that not just casually, but also urgently. For having looked at the nature of biblical faith, we also should not overlook its great need. And indeed, that's something that becomes very clear when we take a step backwards and look at question and answer 20. It asks, are all men and saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? And then it answers, no. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Here we're reminded that salvation is exclusive. It's only for believers. Salvation is for those who possess true faith. Salvation is for those who are grafted in to Christ. It is not for unbelievers. Now that sounds harsh, perhaps. Some would say that this is being very judgmental. But then you need to realize that the catechism is not sitting in judgment of anyone here. It is simply repeating and reciting the words of Scripture. And you know, Scripture everywhere insists that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You listen to Peter. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And listen to Paul, through Jesus, everyone who believes is justified. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You 
and your household. Now we could cite more passages, but there's no denying the thrust of the gospel. And that is that salvation is only through faith and in Christ. And of course I know there are those who disagree. Some cite the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy to the effect that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all men. And they cite that as proof of the fact that everybody is going to be saved. But I would remind you that in that context, the Apostle Paul is countering the view of those who believe that only Jews will be saved. And over against that, he says, nothing doing. Salvation comes to all, Jew and Gentile alike. And there are also people who will quote the well-known words of John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And they see it as a proof and a certainty that God saves all. How could God love the world and not save everybody? But you know, such people need to read on. For in John 3.18, Jesus states that whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So, beloved, when people take refuge in universalism and console themselves with the idea that all will be saved, do not go there. Go the way of the gospel instead. And tell them gently but firmly, this is not what God has revealed to us. Point them to Christ. Point them to his word. Challenge them to read it and to come to grips with its central message. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And at the same time, beloved, teach them. Teach them as well that while this is the bottom line of the gospel, there is so very, very much more to tell, and to learn when it comes to this bottom line and so much connected to it. You know, the Catechism does us another favor when it tells us that we must believe in Jesus Christ, the promise of the gospel, and it also says we must believe all that is promised us in the gospel. That's that third question and answer. So what's all promised in the gospel? Look at answer 23 and you catch a glimpse of it there. You know, there is everything that relates to to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's God the Father and creation. God the Son and redemption. God the Holy Spirit and sanctification or renewal. There's the whole doctrine of the triune God. There's the church and the communion of saints in which we share. There's the forgiveness of all of our sins again. There's that new body that's coming to us. And that everlasting life that constantly beckons. You see, there's so much more to explore, to grasp, to enjoy, to embrace about Christ 
and everything connected to him. So, beloved, you see the curriculum is broad and wide and deep and exhilarating. Pick it up. Feed your soul. Dispense it to others. Excite them. As Christians, there's so much to dig into and to revel around in. And at the same time, we have so much to pass along to others, especially to those who today are walking in darkness. Question 22 asks, what then must a Christian believe? Well, we could rephrase that and say, what then must every man and woman, boy and girl, believe? We must all believe and embrace what is promised us in the gospel. Because in those promises, we find Christ. And in him, and him alone, we find life. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.